0: This is the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Uh, Merry Christmas. It's great to see you all this Christmas week. I've been in the States for 20 years. I'm originally from England. And it took me 20 years to realize there's a difference between what Americans and English people say. In England, we say, Happy Christmas. And in America, you say, Merry Christmas. And I never noticed that in 20 years. I found that out this Christmas. So, Merry Christmas. I finally become an American Christian. Um. What is there new to say about Christmas? Every year it comes around. Every year we celebrate it as Christians. Every year the shops fill up with Christmas trees and the world goes mad, it seems. Christmas seems to spread. Commercial Christmas seems to spread more and more around the world. But what does it mean for Christians? Well, a good place to look is actually in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the part of the Bible that is looking forward to Jesus and his birth. And the Old Testament is the part of the Bible where you cannot argue anything apart from the fact that the only way you can talk about Jesus is through prophecy. It is frankly the most supernatural part of the Bible. It's the part that you can't really argue with, and so therefore it's the part that Christians need to root themselves in. Now what do I mean by that? Well, let's have a look at this passage, and hopefully you'll understand what I'm trying to say there. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the Government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is that talking about? Who are the people? Who is the us to whom the child is born? Who is this child? Remember, this is Isaiah. This is the Old Testament. This is 700 years before Jesus. Later on, uh, in Isaiah 53, he says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Who is that person? Who is that person who is pierced for us? Remember, 700 years before Jesus. When I was uh, at seminary, uh, I went to Princeton Seminary, and Princeton Seminary is is divided between people who are on a track to become pastors, relatively few, and people who go there because they want to be academics. They want to um, join the academy and become credentialed professors. And so it's sort of schizophrenic. You have a, a group of people there who are there because of faith in Jesus, who have confidence in the truth of the Bible as the word of God. And you have these academics who try to prove their, credi- their credentials, their intellectual seriousness by doubting everything in the Bible and critiquing it and ridiculing it oftentimes. Oftentimes, they will try to separate the Old Testament from the New. Like the Old Testament is for the Jewish people, and the New Testament is for Christians, and there's no connection. But then you get passages like this. Isaiah seems to know the future. How is that possible? How could he know the future if he was just a man? How could he know the future if the Bible is just a storybook? The reminiscings of an ancient Bronze Age people. How could he know the future and that future be fulfilled unless something else is going on? Isaiah equals fulfilled prophecy. That means it's not just a storybook. That means it is supernatural. It has information that no natural human being could have without supernatural intervention. And that means... Just maybe, God is real. Maybe the Old and New Testament do point to him. Maybe it is one single story. Maybe it is all about Jesus. These prophecies are a challenge to unbelief. They are a challenge to all who would say Christianity is just a fairy tale. Christianity is just like belief in Father Christmas. Because his, his fulfilled prophecy tells you there is something else going on. These are not just human stories, human fantasies, human mythology. And when you start seeing the Bible that way, as the Word of God, the majesty of it grows. This, by the way, was clear at seminary Mary too. If you just believe the Bible is a book like any other book, what I notice scholars doing is mainly reading people who wrote books about the Bible and arguing different theories. But the sign of a Christian, the sign of someone who takes God seriously, is they don't want to read books about the Bible, they want to read the Bible. Because there is the Word of God. And there is their encounter with this supernatural power and the reality of God, and his presence, not just in history, but in our lives. So when it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, those people are people of faith. And notice, when he says, those people walking in darkness have seen a great light, he is looking into the future. People have seen a great light. That's something in their past. He's talking about us. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about people of faith. People whose lives have been enlightened, illuminated, revealed, made lustrous by the presence of God's truth. Christmas might be a consumer orgy for most of the world, but for people who have seen the great light It is something profound and personal and changes everything. This is the moment, by the way, when you realize what is happening in these words. This is the moment when you're confronted by the reality of God, the reality of the Gospels, the reality of the Christmas story. Who do you think Jesus is this Christmas? What do you think about God? Are you just going through an old pattern, a habit from childhood, something your parents did? Is this just a sentimental exercise? Is this an idea, God, that you like to think about every now and again, you like to argue about, especially when you've drunk a lot of alcohol? Just a pleasing philosophical notion to to bring out in remembrance of bull sessions at college? There is a moment in every human life where you have to decide. Is God real? Not an idea, not an abstraction, not a tale told, not a myth, not a mythology. But God is real, alive, present to the world and present to you. Personal. Available. You can talk to this God if he's alive. You can pray to this God. You can worship someone who is alive. And once you make that switch, once God is not just an idea or an abstraction, but when you realize he is real, he is present, you can pray to him and you can worship him and you can ask him, then all the truths of the Bible become real for you. If you believe that Jesus was given for you, that he went to the cross for you, then nothing is ever going to be the same again. And notice, it's all about that personal gift. Not an abstraction, not a story, a real person. And once he's real, every promise in this passage becomes available to you once you become as people, the people or a person who has seen the light. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. What kind of person is Jesus that you give yourself to him? I've oftentimes heard... Um, on talk radio and, and some of the, uh, the shows, I, I watch a lot of uh, shows on uh, YouTube now, especially the ones that deal with God. And it's amazing, there's kind of a division about the criticism of God. Either God is not real, never existed, fantasy and people who believe are just stupid, ignorant, or God is this monstrous tyrant who forces people to do things. Christians are no better than Islamic terrorists, and you've heard all that language as well. That belief in God means you become subject to someone of absolute will who can make you do anything. But notice how Jesus comes into the world, how God reveals himself. He doesn't show up as a tyrant, doesn't show up with an army, doesn't show up as this almighty presence that demands every knee shall bow, no matter what they think, but comes into our world gently, naked, vulnerable, as vulnerable as is possible to imagine. No threat here. Utter vulnerability first. Coming to that which he created as his own, but as in in as gentle, as unthreatening, as vulnerable a way as it's possible to imagine. That's the kind of God that is worthy of worship. There's no coercion. A God who reveals himself, but reveals himself in grace. No compulsion, no force. That demands not subjection, but demands our heart, because that's what He is giving. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice, this is not a claim about God. This is a prophecy. It is saying the people who encounter this God, who see this light, who receive this child, will call him these things. Because he will do these things in their life. This is what a Christian should expect to happen if they've received Jesus, if they've seen the light, if they've acknowledged in faith that God is real. Wonderful counselor. You'll call him that if you get to know him that. Why? Because his counsel, that is the things that he tells you, the things that he advises when you pray and ask, will be extraordinary and wonderful. They will change your life. In ways that are miraculous, bringing in resources that you cannot imagine, opening doors that you didn't even know existed, making things happen that you could not even imagine as part of your life, because he will steer your life. Into vistas, into places that you've never been to before. Unimaginable things. Wonderful things. If you make him your counselor. And this, by the way, is why the gospel, people inspired by the gospel, God's people, people who are illuminated by his light, have always gone to the darkest places in the world. If you go to dark places, if you go to prisons, if you go to hospitals, if you go to a, where there are wars, famines, pestilence, any kind of cataclysm, the darkest places, you'll find Christians. You know it was never reported on the news, but when we, we took a group of people down um, to uh, help rebuild after Katrina, went down to Louisiana. And when you go down there, you've got to fix things. And so you've got to go to the local uh, lumber lumber place. What is that lumber place called? Lowe's and Home Depot and all those kinds of places. And we were there and we went. And the parking lots were filled with church vans from all over the country who'd send down groups of people in their vans to help people rebuild their houses. I never saw that on TV. But it was Christians responding and going to where the need and the darkness was greatest, Because they have access to this power, this counsel. Mother Teresa went to Calcutta in response to incarnate Jesus. And she started her ministry in the Temple of the Dead. The Hindu Temple of the Dead is an open courtyard. And when people are dying, when their families can't deal with their dying relatives anymore they would just take them to the temple and lay them down in the courtyard and leave them alone to die. It was the temple of the dead. That's how you dispose of dying people. And Mother Teresa made it her practice to go and hold the people as they were dying. She also used to, when she became famous and loads of people would show up to try to to minister with her, that would be the test. She would send them to the temple and if they had enough faith, To see in the dying faces of people the beauty of Jesus, then she could use them. Reputedly, one day a journalist was there and he was watching Mother Teresa and she was hugging uh, this young man who was dying of AIDS. And reputedly, the journalist said, I wouldn't do that for all the money in the world. And Mother Teresa is said to have replied, I wouldn't either. That's not why I'm here. She was here. She was there because she had encountered somebody in reality more wonderful than all the money in the world. And that's why she was there. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty because there is nothing that can resist Jesus Christ. And anything that you start or launch in his name, it will succeed. You know, I thought about this a lot when I came out to Hoboken to help start this church. And somebody said to me, in passing, just as a throwaway line, remember, the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus Christ's church. And it gave me just a sense, this isn't about me. This is about God at work through people of faith. Almighty. You know, there's an old philosophical puzzle. What happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? Well, in God's creation, there is no such paradox. Because God alone is almighty. And there's nothing in this universe that can stand against him. There are no immovable objects in God's universe because he alone is almighty and when you call on him his will will be done when God when Jesus in the, in the prayer he offers us we prayed it today our father when he says, says to us pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven What are we actually praying for? We are praying that the forces that have been unleashed by Jesus, he's coming into the world, will fulfill their purpose. And they will, because he is almighty. And so really what is happening when we pray is we are aligning ourselves and our lives with what is actually happening in the world. That's what's occurring When God sets out to do something, it gets done. There's no hesitation, no doubt about it. And so our prayers are part of aligning ourselves with that purpose. One of my favorite verses also in Isaiah says this. This is Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. If God is a tyrant, those are the most terrifying words that could ever be expressed. But if God is a Savior, if his light comes into the world to redeem that which is broken, to eradicate death and pain and suffering then those are the most beautiful words. And that's what we're aligning ourselves with. We're like farmers who, although we can't feel it, we're in the middle of winter, get ready for the summer. Because we know it's going to come. Because God has promised that it will come. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Everlasting Father, not in the Trinitarian sense of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is referring to Jesus. Everlasting Father in the sense that we will have someone to take care of us forever. That we become part of a family that knows our name and will be with us no matter what dark place we go to. And that family has an agenda. There is a purpose at work in the world, independent of us, that we can sign up for and participate on, but will happen. (coughs) Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on. That's going to happen. That's the promise. There's a wonderful uh, book by Cornelius Plantinga, Not the Way It's Meant to Be, in which he, he looks at the idea that the world is broken by sin and by darkness and by death, and how it is God's mission through Jesus and his people to restore the broken world, to redeem the broken world, that that actually is the mission of the Christian church. <clears throat> and he centers it around this idea of shalom, a Hebrew word that means peace. When when we, we see here, prince of peace, it's the prince of shalom. it says this, Shalom is what the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, called the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspire joyful wonder, as its creator and savior, open doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The promotion of shalom, the restoration of shalom, that's the Christian job description. That's why Christians go to dark places, because that's where the need is greatest. That's where the powers that God gives us can be used to their fullest. If you are a person of faith, you're going to hear or find or feel an itch at some point. It's a sign that you're grown up as a Christian. And it's time to leave your comfort zone. It's time to find dark, dangerous places to bring God's shalom. You'll bring it. Because you've found hope. Because you have a counselor. Because you've got an almighty God who's got your back and can do anything that you ask. And because the reality of God in your life is now so strong that you don't care what your parents say. And you don't care what the doubters say. And you don't care what the forces arrayed against you are. You want to see God's shalom brought. You want to see him at work through you. You want to see his power released You want to be part of the reality of the advance of his kingdom. Because nothing else is going to compare. No video game is going to be as wonderful. And no job is satisfying. And no other relationship is fulfilling. And nothing else in this world will satisfy you as much as that project will. And by the way, it's lurking. He didn't call you by accident. It is lurking right now somewhere in your mind. Just waiting to come alive. It all starts with hope. Can we believe this? The world seems so chaotic and broken, so filled with evil forces, so filled with need and danger. You have to find a way of drawing hope from the, the truths that we're reading about this morning. Making God real in your life. So that God is an actual personal resource, someone you turn to regularly, someone you know, a relationship that is growing, a reality. I've read you this passage before, but it's still, when I think of hope and when I think of the light coming into a dark world, I always think of this passage. It's from the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, if you don't know the story, two hobbits are sent into the darkest place, Mordor to destroy the ring of power. And they are all alone, and they have faced this entire empire of evil. And there's nobody around them. And they're just about to slip out of the light into the shadow of darkness. And this happens. They're completely uh, crushed by weariness. They're tired. They're afraid. They can't sleep. They're completely freaked out. And then this happens. The night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark peak high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star, watched it twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him That in the end, the shadow, sorry, (coughs) the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was a light, a high beauty, be ever, forever beyond its reach. Now, for a moment, his own fate ceased to trouble him, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. It makes me emotional. Because that's the truth. That's the resource. That's the hope of Christmas. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of Christmas, for the gift of a child, for the gift of hope, for the gift of yourself, Lord. Lord, help us to be untroubled by the broken world around us. Help us to be men and women of faith, of truth, of light, fearless in the face of evil, courageous to go to dark places, to encounter dark people, to bring light to a dark land. Lord, may that be the living reality of ourselves and our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.